Greetings and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Joining us today is Natalie Madruga, instructor in writing and rhetoric here at the University of Central Florida. Natalie's research interests include eulogistic rhetoric, public memory and memorialization, critical race theory, cultural rhetorics, and writing pedagogy, with a pedagogical philosophy centered on a foundation in testimonial. Natalie was published in 2023 in Writers, Craft, and Context with the article, What It's Like to Lose Poppy, A Counterstory on Grief. Recently, Natalie was chosen for HSI Faculty Fellowship through the Office for Hispanic Serving Institution Initiatives for the 23-24 academic year, working on the Title V Potential Grant to design and implement the faculty development component of Project Potential. Thank you for joining us today, Natalie. Thank you for having me. I feel like if you weren't us, you would have a hard time understanding some of what I just said. <laughs> this is <laughs> true. <laughs> so let's start with that. Can okay. you give us a little bit of information on your role and the role of Project Potential? Uh, yes. So Project Potencial is part of quite of the few um, initiatives right now from the Hispanic Serving Institutions Office. So Project Potencial is concerned with kind of four key goals within the university. Um, the one that I am the most connected to is increasing faculty professional development, as well as increasing um, the student sense of belonging. So the idea is like by including that faculty, that professional development like component that will then kind of lead into that that increased sense of belonging. Um, so Project Potencial has a couple of areas in that. Um, and then in addition, they also have another grant called Project Infemaria. And that is specifically for, um, I believe, the nursing school. And they're actually working with the writing center for something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I wish I knew a little bit more about that. I talked to... Um, Debbie Weaver mm -hmm. about it recently, but it was kind of escaped my mind. But yes, so all of it is kind of centered towards continuing to work on the idea of servingness um, in terms of in kind of emphasizing the serving in Hispanic serving institutions. So I might end up kind of going back and forth between this and some of your other um, areas of interest. The idea of a testimonial approach mm -hmm. to your pedagogy um, stems, I would think, from a connection to the ideas that the HSI uh, initiative is trying to, um, I don't know, work towards a greater understanding of for both faculty and students, it seems. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what that approach is specifically, the testimonial approach? Sure. Um, so I initially came across the testimonial approach in like the very beginning of grad school um, when I was kind of doing a project in one of my like first classes that I took, which was actually a class on critical race theory with uh, Dr. Jim Kareem. And the testimonial approach is... Um, 
kind of more so connected to like the intersection of like classroom experience, lived experience, um, like somatic response to learning. Um, and I would say it's more like, it's kind of like an everyday practice and it takes like a little bit of like that vulnerability, I would say. Um, but it, it definitely kind of relies on the idea that like, you know, students are coming in with m quite a large contribution to the classroom um, from their pre from their like lived experiences and from their like, kind of like previous knowledge as, you know, specifically in my case, like as writers, readers, meaning makers, communicators, um, and using that as like a starting point to kind of move towards um, like all of the other things that you would kind of talk about and teach about. So I'm curious, um, do you remember what some of your maybe initial um, ideas were or maybe things that you did in um, Dr. Kareem's uh, class uh, that you think were maybe the beginnings of you sort of thinking, oh, this this might be something that I want to sort of put my my focus into or, you know, my interest into, you know, maybe sort of, you know, um, looking back, things that sort of, you know, led you to this being, you know, a, a, a part of your, you know, pedagogical outlook, your, your you know, your scholarly outlook and, and things like that. Do you, do you recall when you were first learning about this, you were like, oh, this, you know, this, this is something that, that I think could work for me. Like, what were those kind of initial ideas like for you? Yeah, so I would say that the one that really kind of appealed to me was there was this one particular article, and it was about a class that um, was more so like collaborative between like the students and the instructors. Um, it was and it was surrounded around the concept of like the auto historia, which is actually the framing that I use for um, the course portfolios in ENC 1102. So they this was something that they actually the students and the instructors worked on it together. But the, essentially the idea was that they were to take kind of like specific societal structures and investigate them in the course. And as they investigate them, investigated them, create content together um, about their experiences within those structures. So like the collaborative component of their course, I thought was really interesting. Um, and the fact that they were kind of like working on this investigation together was also something that I really liked. Um I want to say it's been a while since I've looked back at that article, but I think it's uh, Judith Flores Cardmona is um, the instructor or, you know, professor of that course. Um, I, I could be mixing that up. That I'm might impressed be with that poll, though. I mean, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's a deep cut. You yeah, went for it. You really went I did. For it. I did. Well, you oh, my committed. God, I've like cited it so many times that I like I can't even like. It's yeah, it, it it weaves itself through all of that. I think I cited in almost every single assignment I did in Dr. Kareem's <laughs> class. So. Um, but yeah, so that initial finding of their experiences, putting that course together um, was really interesting to me. And the reason that I actually ended up finding it was because um, I was looking into scholarship within our field that kind of investigated like Hispanic serving institution experiences on the East Coast because a lot of that research is kind of tailored or present in like the Southwest, um, which I think is really useful. Um, I'm, 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 you know, I think it's wonderful that they have all of that information, but, you know, Latino experiences aren't a monolith. So I was kind of looking to see if there were other 
pieces of information out there like that. Um, and that was the only article in that, you know, very introduction to being a researcher experience. You know, I probably didn't have all of the skills I needed to really do that investigation. Um, but that one article was the one where like there was there was a presence of like a more diverse body of students, I guess. I think that it already pairs very well with the approach that we as a department take towards composition. And and I I know I've said this before. It's almost like part of our job is deprogramming students to the idea that writing is so separate from themselves mm -hmm. and giving them the agency to have ownership in the things that they write and that it's not just something that exists, you know, outside of themselves, but it actually does stem much more internally than they've probably ever experienced before. Mm -hmm. So um, I love that. Uh, that there is a word that I didn't even know existed <laughs> and a whole pedagogical approach to what I just thought was good practice based mm -hmm. on what we have learned otherwise in our composition program. Um, so I'm interested in the idea though of like this writerly identity and how it evolves and, you know, the idea of testimonio and I apologize for my pronunciation. No. I just heard it. Um, <laughs> how that it informs your like your embodied experiences as well as what you're trying to communicate to your students in that approach. Yeah, I would say that um, one of the things that I've always really focused on is that like, you know, people hear that phrase and like people hear any type of like pedagogical phrase and it's like, oh, like what, how does that exist? Like that is such an abstract concept to me. But honestly, like it really is like an everyday, it's just like an everyday practice, you know? Um, and I like to stress that I think that vulnerability is a really big part of it. And that's something that I've only like, even though I've been trying to do this for a long time, only have really recently started to incorporate um, in my in my classes, you know, because I feel like it's so hard to like attempt to be yourself in front of students. Um, and I was like, well, if I want to have these types of conversations, like I kind of just have to go for it. Um, so just the other day on Wednesday, my students were looking at some readings and they were looking at a project um, in stylus about note taking and code meshing. And one of my students was like, oh, like, do you do you code mesh? And I was like, oh, of course, like all the time. So then we started having conversations about that. And then like two other students chimed in and they were talking about how they were continuing to learn Spanish. And then we started talking about Duolingo. And I was like, yeah, you know, the Duolingo guilt will follow you. And one of my students was like, yeah, I have a Duolingo widget. And like the longer I go without, you know, doing my daily Duolingo activities, the widget starts to melt. And it was just like, you know, so we were kind of just sharing these little ins and outs of our life and like how the interest in language um, kind of like brought us all together within that conversation. And then, you know, so... The, my student who asked that question about whether or not I code mesh um, has referenced like in previous conversations that they do not speak another language. So they kind of, you know, they had some questions for me about that. And um, I kind of started talking about those experiences of like navigating, you know, multiple languages at the same time. Um, previously before that, we were talking a little bit about like different types of literacies. So I had brought up like my interest in video games and like more specifically um, my interest in Pokemon when I was like 
I, that first started when I was like seven or eight years old. But one of the reasons that I was so fascinated by it was because that was also how I learned to read English. Mm. So I was like kind of doing both of those at the same time. So even though I mentioned it in the front of the class, like without that context, like when I was kind of prompted, we did have conversations around that too. And how like, you know, those everyday childhood activities often really often is, you know, they're formative for everybody, but they're especially formative for multilingual um multilingual folks who are maybe experiencing language in one area and then different variations of language in another. You mentioned that vulnerability, and I've recently had a couple of occasions to consider that myself. I think we forget how unnerving it can be for them to both share their writing with us, but also when they're, especially when they're um, creating writing in new genres that are Mm. previously unknown to them. Um, But also, you know, peer review is a big part of my class. And I had a student a couple weeks ago who is a non-native speaker who was very distressed about the idea of having to give peer review feedback because they felt that they weren't enough of an, of an expert to mm-hmm. do that with any real authority. And that was they were questioning their own like role. And I, I, I said to them, you know, you're a reader just like everybody else. You are a reader. What you have to say is valid and it's a point of view that is valid. valid. I would never put you up for something that would make you feel like you did not have the authority to do it or the ability to do it. I would never put you in that position. But I know myself, when I have to ask peers to read something that I have written, even all these years later, I equate it to the feeling of like showing up in a bathing suit for the mm-hmm. first time in front of a group of strangers. So true. Yeah. Because you just feel you it's it's so um, I don't know, unnerving is not quite it, but you feel very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, important as instructors that we don't lose sight of that vulnerability mm-hmm. and we don't forget because of our frequency, that it's not new for them every single semester and what a position that puts them in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting in the composition classes is that, you know, we're, we're asking students to look at things in new ways. We're asking them to do new things. But then, you know, we try to create environments in the class or in the classroom settings, you know, wherever that whatever kind of modality that might be, perhaps, where, you know, they feel open enough to like try things out. And I think that's really, you know, the key when it comes to, you know, when I think about, you know, students and and working with students is like, what can I do to create an environment where, you know, they're okay being a little vulnerable, Mm -hmm. or they're okay with trying something new, or they're even okay with saying that they're, they're uncomfortable with, you know, this, this new thing, or whatever. And I think that's really, like what can be really, really special, like in the in the composition classes, um, are these kinds of things. And I wanted to ask uh, Natalie, you know, what is it like when you are talking with students um, to help them realize that they can go from sharing their observations and experiences about literacy, language, and things like that, and then sort of actually turn that into a work, like a a, a work of research or whatever. Like that that's one thing again that I think is special about 1102 composition two is that you know a a lot of students don't even they feel so separate from from you know academic research or that kind of research um that it's not for them or it's not their world or whatever but like when you can sort of show them that way in um what has that been like for you that experience with students and, and how does that kind of typically go 
So this is this is an interesting question because this like literally in this semester, I have changed a lot of things about how I teach 1102. Oh, I love this. Yeah. Tell us more. Okay. So my answer to that is stay tuned because I don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I had never really been the type of person to focus um, 1102 on a specific concept, but I am really struck by the concept of literacy. So I divided the class into six weeks, five weeks, and four weeks. The first six weeks being secondary research um, about literacy and writing studies. The next five weeks being applying that to primary research. The last four weeks being reflecting on the portfolio um, or reflecting for the portfolio. But instead of kind of rather starting the class with like, hey, like this is going to be a thing that you're going to do the whole time and it's going to have a beginning and an end and end and welcome to like MRAD world and this is how this works and all of those types of things and you have to figure out what you want to do right now. I actually kind of separated that. So in the first six weeks, I was like, hey, we're going to write a literature review. It's like this part of this entire typical research essay. And now we're kind of getting into the primary research part. So like I'm kind of helping them see the things that they could look at and the things that they um, are interested in. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to kind of be like, okay, well, now that you've looked a little bit into something, whether it was a part of your life or not, um, what what might other people like what might other people say about that? Like what might other people that we've read about say about that? So um, we'll see what happens. I. I've been trying to like use some examples of my own. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. So I'm just curious, do you keep then the literature review a little bit broader and have it in regards to um, writings on or research on writing in general? Like, um, you know, if it was about discourse communities or genres, like just general readings to that approach and then have them do a literature review of that and then find their subject and kind of bring it in later? Or how do you do that? Um, So I would say it actually has more of a structure than it did before. So in the first week, I have them read about like multiliteracies as kind of like that, like, you know, like concept or giving like something like that is an abstraction, like an identifier, like giving like a name to a concept essentially. Um, And then in the second week, um, I have kind of two routes that they could take. So there's an article about like rhetorical attunement that talks about multilingual writers. And then there's an article about literacy brokership. Um, And the literacy brokership article is one that's particularly special to me because I did not really realize what that was or understand what it was and not realize that I was a literacy broker and still am um, until I was like introduced to that concept. Um, so even though I do give them the choice, like personally, there's one that I hope they choose. <laughs> um, but I think that they both get like, you know, both of the articles give something to um, students about that academic conversation on literacy. Like I think that they're, I think that they're both wonderful. Um, I just have a personal connection to one of them a little more. Um, and then from there, I actually have them read um an article from Stylus that is a project on literacy, um, specifically um, literacy and aviation inscriptions take flight. I might be missing a preposition in there, but, um, and I like to use that one as, so in that first article, that was kind of like a concept you read about. Maybe there wasn't really a specific example. Now we're looking at a Stylus project that is a specific example of that thing. 
Um, and then their fourth article is an article of their choice. And it has to all it all it needs to be is that it has to be connected to literacy in some way. Not even asking for a friend, but for myself, can you explain a little bit more about the concept of literacy brokers? Oh, sure. Um, so the idea of literacy brokers are kind of, I see it mostly related to young adult children and um, like multilingual parents who might struggle with like that direct translation of all of the like bureaucracy that comes with all of the things you have to do in the United States per se. Um, there is definitely more kind of avenues about literacy brokership. You know, there are folks who they talk a little bit about it in terms of like volunteer aspects. Um, but essentially the idea is that a literacy broker is a person that is in between another person and a specific action consequence or task and like their work in the middle of that affects that action consequence or task. So the example that I used when I talked about it with some of my students is um, when I was in middle school, I have like a very, I have very formative memories of helping my mom study for her citizenship test. And that's like an example of literacy brokership that really sticks out to me. Mm. So I, and so Amy Tan talks about it a fair bit in mother tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, and having to do that, uh, to act on her mother's behalf, she uses an example of like having to call a stockbroker mm -hmm. and then, you know, the stockbroker is shocked when she and her mom show up like a week later and the voice on the phone is not at all who we thought it was. It was, you know, this child acting on her mom's behalf. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that was the the phrase for it, though. So that's good to know. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I picked that up from... Um I don't want to mess up the first name. <laughs> Her last name is Mihoot. Um, okay. But she wrote an article for Literacy and Composition Studies about literacy brokership. Um, and it's actually really interesting because this is a really interesting tie between like my course and like the fellowship. You know, folks, whenever you're trying to do something that like is helping like sp like minoritized students, people are always like, well, what about X, Y, Z? What about all these other people? What about all these other students? Um, so while literacy brokership, I think, is something that's really common in the Latino community, her article is actually about Romanian immigrants. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I think that the concept is really helpful to understand all, you know, aspects of that experience. Um, but it's not even like in the article, it's not even spotlighting that specific community. Um, so... Yeah, I was actually going to ask to circle back to Project Potencial for a moment. Um, one of the outcomes that you're working on is greater student success and retention. Am I correct? Am I paraphrasing that appropriately? Um, it is one of the goals of the grant. Okay. I'm more connected to the student-like sense of belonging. So I know that it's at the start, and I don't mean to make you the spokesperson for this particular grant, but what does that translate to in actionable type of things that, that UCF is looking to do? Um, that's a good question. Finally, I have one good question. <laughs> no, you have it's so, you have so many you. good Write questions. Write this down. Write you have so down. many good questions. I mean, like, let's be real. Sometimes I say that's a good question when I don't know how to answer the question. <laughs> that's a fair rebuttal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I have my own kind of personal visions about what that looks like. Um, and I think for me, it's just, you know, oftentimes for like underrepresented students, the idea is like, oh, like I, this is not an experience like 
like going through college is not an experience I see myself in or have seen versions of myself in. Um, and essentially like dismantling that conception, that is what I think would be like a success for me. Like if I had to, if I had to like kind of pinpoint like what, what would, what would be a result that would show you that you did the thing? I think that's what I would, that's what I would look for. I think it'll be interesting to see also as the program kind of matures. I'm not going to say develops, but matures because it's very new. It just started mm-hmm. this semester, correct? Uh, Project Potencial has wrapped up um, in year one, but their okay. fellowship, like the inaugural faculty fellow started in, in August. Okay. So I think it's interesting to see what other, um, not to overuse the word pedagogical, but other other areas of interest are going to bring to the table. Because I think it'd be only fair to say that you're going to come into the experience informed by what best practices you have seen as an instructor in your own classrooms. So I wonder how that's going to translate across different disciplines mm-hmm. and what people are going to bring to the experience that way. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, those are kind of some of the questions that I'm already starting to see. I would say one of the biggest places of conversation with that is that, you know, I as the faculty fellow and like kind of working through those conversations, I'm very aware of the fact that like, I teach like a good amount of students, but I teach small classes. So oftentimes the question I get is like, how is this applicable in a class that's not 25 people? How is this applicable in a class that's like 120 people? Um, So that's been kind of an interesting point of conversation that I'm learning a little bit more about. And how big is your cohort approximately? Do you have any, like how many people are working in this particular area with you? In terms of the faculty cohort? Mm -hmm. So the faculty cohort, is currently accepting applications soon <laughs> in October 15th. So um, I will have that number in the future. Okay. But I'm very excited to see if they're, you know, what folks are interested in in terms of that. Um, so we'll see. Interesting. But the Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I guess to kind of give you some sort of an answer to that, last summer... In the Faculty Summer Institute, I believe there were maybe like 25 to 30 um, faculty members in the inaugural HSI track of the Summer Institute. So, Interesting. Yeah, my question was just going to be, you know, have conversations or, you know, maybe plans for activities or materials or, or, you know, what will come of this, this program. Has it been more about like what can be integrated into classes or is it more about um, what happens outside of classes with with students, um, you know, life and experience here at UCF or is it both? Um, I would say it's it's both for sure. Um, I kind of run on the mentality that I think we as faculty get the most out of trying something before we you know, put it out to our students. So my idea is essentially to kind of try a sort of pedagogical approach with um, the folks in the cohort, like see how we learn from it and then see how it can be transferred or translated into our courses. That's both exhilarating and thrilling. Oh, because yeah. while while it could work with a group of other professionals, you know, how that actually translates into necessarily a classroom could be entirely unexpected from how it translated into a group of similarly, um, you know, uh, seasoned <laughs> academics. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. So 
And I don't know. I like to try new things in the classroom. Sure. I feel I feel like maybe that's uh, shared across the board. But I think we're always looking for ways to do it better. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means throwing everything out and starting from scratch, mm-hmm. like you're, you were talking about with your 1102. I did. Yeah. I did. That's, yeah. But it also makes it fun. Like it brings the fun back. It doesn't make it rote. And then you're not bored by the content. Yeah. And that's kind of how I knew I knew that something needed to change because there was like there was like a start to a semester where like a colleague was like, it's like Groundhog Day, you know, like waking up every day. Like, what are we going to see? Who's going to be in our classes? What are they going to be like? You know, what room are they going to be in? Is it going to be hot? Is the technology not going to work? You know, and I, I like, I felt that so deeply. And then I was like, well, wait a second. Like, this is Groundhog Day because of me. Mm. (laughs) Like I have, you know, like I, uh, you know, like we've said before, like we start with the outcomes and we end with the outcomes and whatever happens in between is what happens in between. So I was like, well, let me change up what happens in between and see what happens. Yeah, I love that too, because fall freshmen are so fun. They're so excited to be here. And they're not jaded by the experience. They don't think they know everything just yet, or at least not as bad as they will in the spring. <laughs> and I, I forget every year, and then I'm reminded, and I'm always pleased, like how fun it is to be in a classroom with freshmen in the fall. Mm-hmm. And and that like helps reinvigorate, reinvigorate, rejuvenate, whatever word I need for that to <laughs> to get excited about what we're teaching and and seeing it make an impact to them is is a lot of fun. But I agree that it. You can get stuck in some of the same ideas and readings. I changed up a lot of my readings for 1101 this semester for the same reason. I was like, I've been doing these other ones for too long and I don't even know if they're effective anymore Mm -hmm. or they're just effective because I'm saying they are. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's shake it up and try something different. That's awesome. It is fun. I want to switch gears uh, a little bit and uh, talk about your um, piece, what it's like to lose Poppy. Um, And I wanted to ask, you know, obviously we can see the, the, you know, the writerly identity, you know, the, the personal stories in there. Um, one of the things that struck me about it that I liked so much about it was just it's sort of how it, you know, when I was reading it, it was like a fresh original form, you know, like it, it was, it didn't read like a lot of, you know, journal articles that I've read recently or that my students are, are finding now in their like research projects and stuff like that. So I wanted to ask a little bit about like, what was the process like to uh, think about or or maybe for you, like reimagine the way you write something or or maybe, you know, you've been experimenting with these kinds of different forms and deliveries for a while now. I was just curious, like, how does it sort of come to be, you know, a, a read like that, which I thought was just, yeah, it just hit me as really, really not like much else that I've read, which was really uh, amazing. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, I think one of the reasons why it it not only like did not fit into that type of like genre, but it, it really couldn't um, is because like the four kind of moments in there were very ephemeral. You know, when I wrote about them, it was that it was like in in such a kind of like very specific writing situation that attempting to like retrofit them for an academic article was just not going to communicate the thing it needed to communicate. Um, And I'm always, I'm always looking to push back against that. So honestly, it was kind of like a, like 
multiple benefits situation there um, with getting to kind of put some resistance there, but also keep that as um, vulnerable as it initially was when I first wrote them. Um, but yeah, I, I that's one of my favorite things about it is that it's like not quite an academic article, but it's not quite other things either. No, there is a grounding there, though, in in theory and other authors and, and things like that. But it's but it's sort of I don't know. It's just it's just to me threaded really interestingly throughout, you know, and, and not um, again, it, it wasn't to me, it wasn't like. I don't know, I guess maybe predictable is not the right word, but it wasn't that it wasn't like familiar. And so that 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 I thought was pretty exciting. So I wonder if there were like were there other iterations of the of the structure and organization of that that you considered and like I, I'm just I'm just super interested in the process of how something comes out that cool. <laughs> oh well, thank you. <laughs> um, so it's really inter- interesting that you say that. Um, so the original original kind of place where that project came from was actually um, from my rhetorical traditions class that I took with Dr. Stephanie Wheeler. Um, and it was originally a deconstructed read um, using, I guess, sort of want to use using like theoretical tools from, um, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, so I'm just going to say Derrida. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll we'll go back in and fill in all these citations later in post production. <laughs> <There we> <laughs> put in the first. I'll I'll put in the first yeah. names now. The names are in the show notes. I think yeah. it's appropriate to just say Derrida. You don't yeah, have to worry about the first yeah. name. He, okay. his last name is enough. Yeah, that's true. You know, if you can't recognize him by the last name, maybe yeah. you'll recognize him by the hair. Yeah. But we don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I really tried to kind of like. You know, it was it was part of the course and I wanted to, you know, attempt to make that like fit in some way, shape or form. Like I wanted to try to use those those tools. Um, And I think what ended up kind of happening for me and why it changed so much was that I didn't really know like where like the core of my research interests were rhetorically at that point. Um, And then I started to read more from like the eulogistic rhetoric approaches. And that was the first time that like something that original from rhetorical theory made sense to me. So I, I like I tried in terms of like understanding, you know, like truly, really understanding like, you know, Aristotle and Plato and like, inter- in, you know, insert other person here. But I couldn't really make the connection to like modern things. And then I read one of the first like funeral orations from Demosthenes. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, And because of that, I was like, you know, this was such an innate understanding of this concept. Like, I'm going to have to completely re-theorize this whole thing. Um, So a a lot of that unfolding is where that came from. So, like, not only while the, like, content and, like, I guess feeling of those, like, vulnerability moments in the text remained what they were and remained, like, the emotions I was talking about, the argument portion was something I had to completely kind of re-theorize. So. And correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but you're almost mirroring the, with the way that you constructed it, you're mirroring the same um, like philosophical thing that you're arguing against or that has shaped the hierarchy of, of grief and eulogy. Like, so I was, I read your piece and you talked about, was it Dionysus? 
I, I don't know the name of the Greek person that you're talking about. Oh, Demosthenes. Demosthenes. Um, that was a part about eulogies and like soldiers and the purpose right yeah. behind. So the idea that there's a hierarchy of what can be publicly acknowledged when mm-hmm. it comes to eulogy. And so you're almost mirroring similarly, like your own story is also representing the thing that that is fighting back against and that idea of where hierarchy falls in and the place of eulogy and mourning and grief and everything that's it is it is an interesting way to push back against those genre conventions and mirror with your own narrative what the uh like the the theoretical framework that you're also discussing in the piece itself yeah and it's something that like i you know i think a lot about in terms of like it's like it's such a macro understanding of of death that has such a like impactful effect on like interpersonal experiences and that's the thing that really gets me about that is that like you know like how would we treat grief if this hierarchy didn't exist how would we treat grief how would we treat violence if the people dying didn't matter based on where they stood you know, economically, socially, racially, you know, able-bodied, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, those are the kinds of things I think about a lot. I, Since I utilized a lot of, like, my personal experiences, that is kind of an area that I, you know, I, I really focused on that in the article. But the thing that really brought me to that um, interest in eulogistic rhetoric is the connection between, like, eulogistic rhetoric, critical race theory, and violence. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, So my first kind of really like being struck by something like that was when I started to learn more about the um, missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic. Um, So I did a project about that when I took um, Dr. Sonia Arellano's Arellano's, um, gendered rhetorics class. And I looked at um, what was publicly available in, in terms of documents from tribal nations and documents from um, like land in New Mexico, kind of where those lands maybe intersect or overflow or probably even, you know, one on top of the other. Um, I don't know much about how those lines work to really like fully comment on it. Um, but it was really interesting to see how focused, you know, their community was on this problem and how the people who like were next door to them simply weren't. Um, and then the thing that really got me was that um, for indigenous AFAB people, uh, murder is the, I believe, second leading cause of death for them. Which is just like... Unthinkable. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. You know? And we just we just walk around like, like that's a fact and like nobody's... I don't want to say nobody's doing anything about it, but like, you know. It's not the lead story on cable news yeah. at seven. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... That was definitely kind of like the start of that, um, but. Okay. When you think about some of these, um, you know, ideas that you had for, for your own piece, um, do you have any that are, that are sort of like, you know, um, coming up for you that, that you were interested in exploring or, you know, um, maybe not the next sort of step, but the next sort of like uh, idea that's, that's you know, brewing for, for something that you might want to sort of, um, write about or, or explore? I, yeah, I think, I think, I think of all of those things all of the time, you know, uh-huh. 
Um, Not to put you on the spot here for like, you know, ha- having to do this in the in the future plans or on the, or on the like record. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, but you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I just like, I see that in so many different, you know, areas of my life. Sometimes I see that every day, you know, like I think about, um, so my friends and I, every week we, we watch a movie on Wednesdays. We have like a friend movie night on Wednesdays and um, we all have contributed to a list of the movies and then a friend of mine, they created like a digital wheel and we spin the wheel. It's called the wheel of watch. So for October, we specifically have a spooky wheel of watch. Um, so we, they, you know, they spun the spooky wheel of watch and the first movie um, was the original Candyman from 1992. Oh, yeah. I remember when that came out. No? Not familiar. Not yeah, familiar. I was afraid to look in the bathroom mirror for months. Oh, I bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was interesting, you know, and it was like a fun watch together with friends and whatnot. Um, and so, like, you know, and I I guess to, like, give, like, the full backstory on this, um, I've always kind of sort of had, like, an interest in true crime because my father was a criminal prosecutor. And I also think that that's where, like, that intersection of, like, understanding, like, the ignoring of violence comes into play was because like it was something that really was just throughout my entire life with his experiences as an attorney. Um, since I have that like interest, I, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, mm-hmm. I guess you'd say, well, yeah, that's what the people call it. I don't know why I said, I guess you'd <laughs> yeah. say it's just, I guess the idea of ne- n- you know, naming a podcast while I'm on a podcast just feels like that's fine. We're okay with yeah, that. It's all okay. Right. <laughs> There's plenty for everybody. I guess we'll give shout outs. It's all good. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was an episode that talked about the story of um, Ruthie Mae McCoy, which is the um, murder that the Candyman is actually based on. Oh, and it's a story about a um, a black woman living in like a public housing um, building in Chicago, and she had called police multiple times, and her neighbor had called police multiple times because she said that there were people breaking into her apartment um, through the through the wall, through the like specifically like where the mirror would be, or through the bathroom through the bathroom like mirror or something like that, um, and you know there there was like. A diluted response to that, I guess, is the way I will put that. Um, And 36 hours later, like they, you know, not, I think even more than that, like maybe 48 hours later, like they, they took down her door and she had been like, she had been shot. And it was like on that day that she had called 911, on that day that her neighbor had called 911, like they found footage of these two people like stealing her TV. Mm. They found them like with her TV, like in their hands, Mm -hmm. you know? And as I kind of put together, like, the dots that I was like, oh, my God, like, this is, I know this story. Like, I know what this story is about. Um, I started to, like, as I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, like, this is kind of, like, interesting. But I also feel like there might be missing some things here, you know, which, like, I get. It's like, it's early 90s. Like, we're trying, you know, they're trying their best at that point. Um, But then I didn't realize or I didn't know that Jordan Peele had actually remade and rewritten Candyman as a sequel in 2021 Hmm. and you know he's he's very you know he's well known for like his social commentary especially around those types of issues so i was like man like i can't even believe what that must be like and now i'm like i gotta watch it i gotta watch it because like (laughs) he's he you know must be just like so good and so you know um 
like so spot on. I feel like I've really rambled in to answer your question is just to say that like that type of stuff, like, you know, today it's today it's the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy, but tomorrow it could be the story of somebody else. Um, and just because, you know, I wake up tomorrow and it's the story of somebody else, it doesn't mean that I'm forgetting about all of the other ones. Mm. Um, they just always stick with me in my mind, you know? Yeah, and I think I, 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 I love your answer because it also kind of ties into, you know, even talking about the the spooky movies and Candyman, you know, what that also kind of shows is that these are things that are, you know, and I think you even mentioned this in um, uh, uh, your, your article um, about, you know, those things that happen in movies, the characters that get, you know, sort of killed off in movies and things like that. And it's, you know, even the Candyman example based, even based on a true story, like it, it then still becomes something that is not, you know, maybe forgotten completely, but not sort of treated, you know, or or um, that death is not treated the same. You yes. know what I mean? And I think that's really kind of, you know, uh, what you're getting at. So I I think it was a great example, a great, <laughs> great side story to, to show that as well. Mm-hmm. And Thank I think you. it illustrates the idea that when you're someone who's who studies for a living like that, yes. is in, that is constantly involved in the like the act of interrogating that we never sleep <laughs> yes it's so true <laughs> like oh how God. often you'll be doing something that seems completely benign and all of a sudden you're like wow that's really that's really interesting to consider maybe i should do some research on this or what has anyone written on this particular topic yeah and, yeah yeah that even happened to me a few weeks ago with like something very poignant and i can't even remember what it is right now but eventually like i will see that thing again and be like oh my god yes mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, and like, I think it's another really helpful example. Like I can't, you know, I, I can't pin the whole origin of trajectory of like, you know, cause the movie is also based on a short story and I don't know what the short story is based off of because it's like from a, I think it's from a British writer, um, and whatnot. Like, I don't know who got which idea from what, but like, I know about that event that occurred. And as I started to like hear the same details in the movie, I was like, oh my God, like this is real. Like this happened to somebody. And I was the only person in the room who knew that. Um, mm. It's also because, you know, they our interests are a little different. And two of my friends really do not like scary movies. Like they were drawing on their, uh, you know, on their tablets the whole time, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you got to you got to do what you got to do to protect yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just thought it was a really good example of like, you know, there are people who who walk around and are like, that's, that's, this movie is based on that short story. And then there are people that walk around and be like, this movie is based on a horrible tragedy of injustice. Mm. Well, we are closing in on our time for this episode. So um, I just wanted to kind of throw it out there. Are there, you know, um, things that you are uh, uh, kind of looking forward to or kind of on the horizon for you um, for any of the kind of projects and roles that, that you're involved in? Um, that you'd like to tell us about? Um, Sure. So Project Potencial will be putting out those um, applications for the faculty spring cohort very, very soon. Um, So I would probably look out on their social media pages and on the main website for that. Um, Other than that, uh, I guess one of the things I would like to kind of like make sure I close with is that like, you know, like we've mentioned and talked about like quite a few different like underrepresented communities and the things that they go through and like the violence that they experience and whatnot. Um, You know, and I think, I think it's important to make sure that we don't sensationalize that, um, but that we learn from those experiences and do our best to continue the advocacy. So 
Um, I guess I just want to close with like, if anything from this impacted you, if any of these stories made you think of something like, please, please go out there, you know, learn the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy, um, learn the story of the, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women that are, you know, many still missing, their families are still looking for them, their families are still hoping for them. You know, they're, they're people, you know, just like us. And um, I guess it's like, that's like my, my core thing, I would say. And like, that's what informs my pedagogy, informs like my daily life, informs my activities. Like everybody, everybody matters. Everybody has their story um, and people should care about other people. That's a, I can't think of a better way to wrap up a particular oh, episode with that sentiment. Um, thank you so much for sharing your passions and your interests with us today. It was a real pleasure getting to talk to you and spend some time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for being here and thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>